Good morning, everyone. So great to be here all together on this sunny, finally, relatively nice Sunday morning. Do you want this? My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. And I uh, just wanted to take a quick moment before we get started in our text this morning. Um, I guess this is my first time, you know, being up here with all of you since being married. So I wanted to take a quick moment and thank everybody um, for your, you know, your gifts and your prayers and your love and congratulations. Uh, Emma and I have been, you know, really blessed to be here with you guys. Uh, you all mean a lot to us. Uh, we thank the Lord, you know, for bringing us here and for all of you guys. So thank you to all of you. Um, <clears throat> I've never been accused of being a man of many words, but I have been accused of being a man of awkward words. So please, for your sake and mine, just accept this. Our, our first month has been good. It's been lovely. We love each other. But if you come and ask how the first month has been, the awkward word I will give you is good. And that's probably going to be the only word because I don't know how to answer other than that. But rest assured, if you're worried, it's been lovely. Unless you're, of course, feeling like you really want to um, do some harm and create an awkward situation, then by all means, come and ask. <clears throat> I wanted to uh, intro this morning by telling a story uh, from former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. He wrote in his 2010 memoir a story of a childhood friend of his who came from a Jewish family who with his family, emigrated from the UK to America, and they moved to New York. And the family was never very well off, and sad to say, shortly after they moved there, the father of the family passed away. Now, it took quite a bit of time and a lot of hard work for uh, the young man in the family, who was friends with uh, Prime Minister Blair, to work his way up and become fairly financially successful. And after he did, he would go to his mother and offer her, you know, trips around the world and say, Mom, I've made all of this money. Please, would you take some? Would you travel the world, experience things? You know, we are able to now. And for some reason, to his surprise, she would never take him up on it. And some time passed, and as he grew older, she, you know, her time came and she passed along. And they went to find her belongings that she'd left behind, uh, looking specifically for her jewelry in a safety deposit box. And please bear with me. I'm really trying to make this dramatic, okay? So, like, let's go. They found another box in the box, in the deposit box. And this box had a lock on it with no key. And so, thank you. <laughs> He wondered, hmm, how do I get it open? And they got some tools and a drill, and story goes, they drilled it open. And in it, you know, you might be scratching your head or humming, wondering what's inside. Maybe it's some cash or some rare jewelry, some valuables, some precious metal, maybe stocks and bonds. And they opened it, and they found tissue paper. And they rummaged through, and they pulled it out, and they pulled it out, and for some reason, he specifically mentioned that there was a lot of it. And they got all of it out, and in it, the mother's most prized possession, the thing that she valued the most, 
to put it in this extra safe box was her US citizenship papers. Let's take a moment to pray before we open up. <clears throat> Lord, it's because of you we're all here. It's because of you we all woke up this morning. We have breath in our lungs as we just sang. Lord, we thank you for the gift. Uh, it is to be here, the joy that we have. Lord, we thank you for who you are and for your word that you loved us and revealed yourself to us and gave us your word. Lord, I pray that uh, we would be encouraged and strengthened by your word this morning. I pray, uh, Lord, if uh, there are those of us here who don't know you, you would call uh, them to yourself and we would all leave here having experienced you this morning. Lord, I pray you would get me out of the way. Uh, you are the potter, I'm the clay. I pray that you would speak through me and this text this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right. If you missed it from the story that I shared just a second ago, our topic this morning is citizenship. More specifically, we're talking about the rights and responsibilities that come with citizenship. If you recall a few weeks ago, Scott, as he introduced Philippians to all of us, mentioned that Philippi was primarily inhabited by you know, former and currently serving military personnel. And so all of the people, the men specifically who lived here, were proud, patriotic Roman citizens who took their rights and responsibilities seriously. And so for Paul to talk to them about citizenship, you know, these Philippian believers picked up on what he was putting down uh, very intuitively and instinctually. I've called this message this morning productive, patriotic, and poised because it's my prayer that we would learn this morning to be pr productive, patriotic, and poised citizens. We were encouraged uh, by Tim and Scott as we've been going through Philippians up until this point to be reading it each week. I, I think it takes only 14 or 15 minutes or so to get through the whole book. And so uh, maybe you've read through the whole thing up until this point and you're going, okay, you weirdo, I've read this whole thing. I don't see citizen in here. I don't see the word. Where are you getting this from? And let me tell you, it is here, it's hidden, and it's in our text this morning. So if you would be so inclined, if you have a copy of God's Word, would you open up to Philippians chapter 1? We're in Philippians 1, going from the end of verse 18 all the way down to verse 30. I'm reading from the ESV, by the way. I guess the others uh, usually use the NIV, so if it's slightly different, there's no difference in meaning. Uh, it's just the group who translated it you know, changed a few words ever so slightly. <clears throat> All right, here we are, Philippians 1, beginning at verse, uh, the end of verse 18. He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, his present circumstances being in prison, will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell, as if he has a choice here. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire, what I want, is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, he writes. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you again or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation, and both from God. For it has been granted, given, gifted to you, that for the sake of Christ, his glory, and the gospel, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Did you see citizen in there? It's hidden, and unless for some reason you did fantastically better in Greek than I ever did, and you're reading an interlinear this morning, both languages side by side, it's really easy to miss. It's actually in verse 27. The Greek has one word for our six English words, let your manner of life be. The Greek word is politeuesthe, and it literally means all of you live as citizens as or of. So verse 27, a very literal translation would be, only all of you live as citizens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I said before, it's fitting for Paul to write this, for the Lord to write it through Paul, because they would have picked up on it intuitively. They would have understand, understood very quickly what we can easily miss. Talking about rights and responsibilities, uh, as Romans, they had certain rights and responsibilities that non-citizens didn't have. Uh, some of the rights included you know, tax exemptions or the right to due process uh, before a court. Some of the responsibilities included military service for all of the young men. Uh, it meant upholding the dignity of the empire and the emperor. And so citizenship is important. We're commanded to take, it citizen, to take it seriously. We're commanded to be good citizens. But I want to be very forthright and say at the beginning here that what I believe the most important part of citizenship is identity. And being forthright, uh, identity has been a very popular topic in the past five or 10 years, in Christian circles especially, and I want to say that I don't believe what Paul is getting at with citizen here is, you know, self-worth and esteem. That's a part of it, but I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Identity is important because if you don't know who you are, you won't know how to live. So citizenship is important because it gives you identity, and identity tells you 
how to live. If you don't know your identity, you don't know how to live. And so, please none of you be alarmed when I don't say it's three points, but in this text, I see six rights and responsibilities that we are given, that we are told to live out. Here is number one. As citizens of the gospel, as Christians, you have the right and the responsibility to be unashamed. Would you look with me again at verses 18, 19, and 20? He says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, he says. Uh, Paul here cites a verse from the Old Testament, Psalm 34. It should be on the screen for you. Verses 4 and 5, he says, I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. On the one hand, as believers, we have a right to be unashamed because we know that the Lord is faithful and good, and he always delivers. In Paul's circumstance, he didn't know if deliverance would look like getting out of jail, or if it meant, you know, being delivered from his earthly body of sin, as he complains about in Romans 7, if you're familiar with it. He didn't know if deliverance would look like being freed from this life. But he did know for sure it would turn out for his deliverance because the Lord is faithful. When Paul was unjustly thrown in prison, the Lord didn't stomp down from his throne and grab a table and throw together some kind of get Paul out of jail plan. He wasn't caught off guard, knew exactly what was going on. He was in control the whole time. He will always deliver one way or another. So on the one hand, we have the right to be unashamed. On the other hand, we have the responsibility. Only a few weeks ago, Tim was telling us about the prophet Agabus in Acts, who took Paul's belt and bound his hands and said, the owner of this belt will be thrown in prison. And all of Paul's uh, companions and his friends said, don't go to Jerusalem. Did you not hear the guy? Did you not hear that you're going to be thrown in prison? And he you know, stands before them and says, I am a proud, patriotic citizen of the gospel. I will take the gospel to Jerusalem. I'm going. And he did. He went unashamed. If you're at all familiar with uh, famous reformer Martin Luther who nailed his 95 Thesis to the door at Wittenberg, he was called before a, a group of people called the Diet of Worms. It was the Catholic Church at the time, the ruling body, and they demanded that he recant his reformed doctrines, what we go by today. Um, primarily, you know, everybody have a copy of God's word for themselves and study it that we're saved by faith alone, and they said recant this. And knowing that he stood condemned by them, probably going to be executed. He's very famously quoted with saying, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, amen. He knew very well what he was doing and he did it unashamedly. Even Jesus, the night he was betrayed, 
He very well could have called angels down to save him. He could have gone to some place. He knew they wouldn't look, but he actually went to a place that he was known for frequenting. He wasn't at the garden uh, all that infrequently. He knew that they would be looking for him there. And so I asked myself this week as I prepared this and asked you the same question, brother or sister, Friend, what group this week can you stand in front of unashamedly and say, I stand on the gospel, I stand on truth, I cannot do otherwise? What group will you go before knowing that it may cost? <clears throat> I keep hearing stories more often nowadays of even high school students being bullied and shamed, you know, by teachers and other classmates and as lovingly uh, as I can students and those of you in the workforce in similar situations I ask who can you go before unashamed this week by the Lord's power all right as gospel citizens, we have the right and the responsibility to be unashamed. Here's point number two. As gospel citizens, as Christians, you have the right and responsibility to live for Christ. Uh, let's pick up where we left off, verse 20 down to 22. He says, uh, This is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Now, we have the right to live for Christ in one sense, because before we're saved, before we know him, before the Holy Spirit enters us, we have neither the right or even the ability to live for him. To live for him means to love him. And before the Holy Spirit's in us, we have neither the right or the ability because as much as we have free will, we never ever will choose to love him and to live for him. But then when the Holy Spirit comes into us and we're saved, we have both the right and the ability to live for him and to love him as we're called to do. So we have the right in one sense and we also have the responsibility you know, we talked a little bit about Paul being unjustly in chains uh, in Rome in prison. You know, he's with a Praetorian guard, the uh, most elite of Rome's soldiers. You know, and he knew very well, Paul, he could have not gone to Jerusalem in the beginning. Uh, he could, you know, stop preaching and writing from jail. But he doesn't. And notice in verse 20, whether by life or by death, I would like to say this, that living for him, for the Lord, means doing so until our last dying breath. Only one of the original apostles actually lived out his days you know, to die of old age. It was John. He was exiled to an island. All the rest were martyred. And I don't think any of us here this morning are in you know, immediate danger of martyrdom or even being put in chains yet you know, for the gospel as Paul has been. 
but maybe your chains don't look like steel and a Roman guard. Maybe they look like a hospital gown or a bed. Maybe it looks like something else. And may I encourage you, as Paul lived for Christ in those chains, we can too. We have the right and the responsibility. So we have the right and the responsibility to be unashamed, to live for Christ. And now moving right along, here's number three. You have the right and the responsibility to put others above yourself. Let's look at uh, verses 22 to 26 where Paul uh, gives us a little bit of an insight into his own thinking, what he's wrestling with himself. He says, you know, between life and death, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul knew that you know, death meant freedom for him. Death meant freedom from the chains, from the guard, from the dusty, dirty, dingy dungeon he was in. Death meant freedom from the physical pain he would have been in, from the scars on his back, from the ridicule he got. Death meant freedom from all of it. And it could come to him in an instant. He could irritate the guard into putting him to, out of his misery. He could go before Caesar and keep going with the gospel and be put out of his misery. He could have preached harder and been stoned to death like Stephen was. He also could have not gone to Jerusalem. Or he could go before Caesar and say, hey, sorry, man, I didn't mean it, actually. I'm done with this Jesus stuff and just gone and lived out the rest of his days on some nice island or Italian villa. But he didn't. He put the needs of the Philippians above his own. He also put the needs of the jailer and the jailers above his own. He put their spiritual needs above his needs for safety and for comfort. And we read his desire was even to go before Caesar in Rome and say, I know you're the king, but you repent. That was his desire. And he puts even Caesar's needs, his spiritual needs, above his own. And so, like our last few questions, whose spiritual need will we put above our own need and desire for comfort this week? What brother or sister has a need that we can put above our own? This is a great question for myself, as I've been wrestling with, but what thing does your spouse want you to start doing or not do that you are doing? Whose need can we put above our own? Okay, number five, you have the right and the responsibility. You feel like I'm arresting you yet, reading your rights? I'd be getting tired of that. You have the right and responsibility to be unafraid of our enemies. 
We skipped one, but we'll go back to it. Verse 28, he says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation. That's a gift from God. All right. The word for frightened here, we're doing a lot of Greek vocab this morning. The word for frightened here, uh, this is another word that the Philippians would have picked up on very instinctually. And it carries with it the idea of horses getting spooked and stampeding heedlessly. Or uh, we're going to throw it up on the screen here in a few moments as we go back to point number four. But it has also the idea of you know, Roman soldiers who are supposed to be close to each other, holding their shields, protecting themselves and one another, breaking ranks and fleeing. And we're told not to do that, to not be frightened. Three important notes on not being frightened and anything by your opponents. Okay, quick side notes. One, the church does have enemies. Two, one of those enemies is death. Three, we are not to be afraid of any of them. There are groups and governments and organizations and people and family members and friends and neighbors who have intentionally chosen to make themselves enemies of the church. And this is not, you know, a sermon or a speech to get us galvanized to go be militant, other than, you know, of course, to spread the gospel and the love of Christ. But there are people who have made themselves enemies of the church. It's a fact. And another fact is death is an enemy in general. Death is an enemy. And the Bible says that death is the final enemy that Jesus will rest under his feet as a footstool when he returns. But we don't have to be afraid of any of them. In regards to our fleshly enemies, it's very popular to cite Ephesians 6 and say, our battle is not with flesh and blood, but, you know, spiritual powers. And yes, that's true. Our ultimate enemy is sin and Satan. But there are those who have aligned themselves with him. And the point is, we don't have to be afraid of them. We do as Jesus said, and we pray for those who persecute us. If we're slapped, we turn the other cheek. We you know, as Paul did with his enemy in jail, shared the love of Christ with him, and we evangelize to them, we pray for them, and when it comes to death, we don't have to be afraid of it. Death is by far and away not the worst fate that could befall a Christian. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, uh, should be thrown up on the screen, but sorry guys, I kind of, I kind of, Messed you up a little bit. <clears throat> he says, Do not fear the one who can destroy the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And he's speaking about the Lord there. Only God has the power to do that. Okay. Just seeing if you're uh, still awake. You know, going 0.5 and then 4. And it sounds like, it looks like we're doing okay. Hopefully I haven't put any of you to sleep yet. Here we are. We're going back to point number four, but we'll call it five. Here you go. You have the right and the responsibility to be united with other believers. 
This is coming from verses 27 and 28, where Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. More words that these guys would have picked up on very instinctually. You know, stand firm like soldiers, he's saying in battle, unafraid. He says, strive side by side to each other, with each other. The word, actually, that we have for our English word athlete comes from this Greek word where he says strive. He means, like, put your back into it, into being united, unified. You might break a sweat, he says, and that's good, we should. That's the imagery that it has. There is a picture that should be coming up here. Uh, these soldiers. So when he's saying strive side by side with each other, this is the image that they would be picking up on. It's these soldiers who create this fortress with their shields so that enemy arrows can't get any of them. Important note on Christian unity, we are not codependent, you know, uh, excessively reliant on each other for needs, but we're also not independent. We're not meant to be lone islands, lone wolves. We are interdependent, meaning we depend on each other as these soldiers did. They counted on each other for protection and that none of them would be afraid and break ranks. Okay, so let's go back over all five points so far. You have the right and the responsibility to be unashamed, to live for Christ, to put others above yourself, to be united with other believers, to be unafraid of our enemies, and in closing, here's point number six, you have the right and the responsibility as Christian citizens, citizens of the gospel, it sounds kind of backwards, but to suffer. Would you look with me at verses 29 and 30? He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And we'll, I'll close with this story to illustrate this point. Uh, J. Oswald Sanders used to tell the story of a missionary in India who would travel every day to a different village and share the gospel with them, and he was a poor man, poor enough that he couldn't even afford to put shoes on his feet. And so you can imagine probably, although you may not want to picture it, what his feet looked like, all blistered and bruised and bloody as he travels these dirt roads in India. And story goes that he came to a village one day and starts, you know, around noon getting up and preaching to everybody and the whole town comes and gathers around and listens attentively and then says, there's the door. We don't want your message. We don't want any of what you're selling. And so he left and apparently it was a warm day so when he left the city he went and found a tree to sleep under. And he woke sometime later to the whole village surrounding him. And the elder of the village, in his face, saying to him, we came to check you out.
and see why you came. We noticed your feet, and we've concluded that we want to hear from a man who is willing to suffer so much to bring us his message. You have the right and the responsibility to be unashamed, to live and die for Christ, to put others above yourself, to be united with other believers, to be unafraid, and to suffer. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this text. Pray that you would use it to strengthen us, that we would live for you. And Lord, I pray that we would also, as, going, as we're going through Philippians, be joyful in all of these things. We would remember that we have the right and responsibility to be joyful as well because you have delivered us. Lord, would you, we know that you do go before us. Holy Spirit, convict us of this, of this message and these points this week. Help us to remember them. We thank you and we love you, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> all right, friends. Thank you. You guys are loved.